If you haven't yet, turn with me to Genesis chapter 50. Genesis chapter 50. Our uh, title for this sermon you can find there in your bulletin, but it is Death and the Promise of God. Death and the Promise of God. Of God. Genesis 50, the text that Derek just read a portion of, is sandwiched between two funerals the funeral of Jacob or Israel and the funeral of Joseph. And so I, I really I, I want us to be able to look at these truths, to be able to look at this story in light of where we've been throughout the rest of Genesis. And to be able to see that just as we've started in Genesis chapter 3 with the promise of God that the seed of the woman would destroy, would crush the serpent's head, that we would see this ongoing promise that even in the face of death, the promise of God continues and to center our eyes on how that is true. And why that is true is because of Christ. And praise be to Him that we can find Him even in Genesis chapter 50. So beginning in Genesis chapter 50 verse 4, we see that the, the ceremony of Israel is just now taking place. The day of mourning are over. Joseph has mourned, and even the Egyptians have mourned over the death of Jacob. And now it's time for Joseph to fulfill his obligation, to fulfill his oath in taking his father back to Canaan. Jacob, Israel, gets a better funeral than Joseph. And that's an interesting thing if you think about it, because from Genesis chapter 37 all the way through to Genesis chapter 50, who's been the leading character? Not Jacob, but Joseph. How Joseph is ruling and reigning in Egypt, right? Spending time in the pit, spending time in jail under the false accusation of Potiphar's wife. But then, being exalted to the right hand of Pharaoh, to where anything that Jacob or anything that Joseph says goes. We need to conceal grain. Pharaoh stamps the seal of it. Well, Joseph said it, so we're going to do it. The story has transitioned to Joseph, but it's to Jacob, to Israel that the Egyptians have become so in love with. That as Joseph petitions Pharaoh to go and make good on this oath, Pharaoh allows, and it says that not only did Pharaoh answer in verse 6, go up and bury your father as he made you swear, but we see later in verse 7 that as Joseph goes up to bury his father, with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, 
the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen, and there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. And lest there be any doubt, our brother Moses says, it was a very great company. This is the context of our passage. Joseph, his family, and all of Egypt mourning over Jacob. And so as they go on their way from Goshen on the eastern border of Egypt to Canaan, a little northeast from there, a few days' journey, they arrive at a place what's known as the floor of Atad, verse 10. And the text reads that when they came to this place, you're probably like, man, is there going to be something profound about this place? No. It might be even likened to Eastwood. And when you say, oh, where, where are you at? Where do you live? Around here, people know Eastwood, but if you go into the urban center of Louisville, they'd be like, oh, what county is that in? Well, Jefferson County. If you said the fleshing, the, the fleshing threshing floor of Atad, the threshing floor of Atad, people perhaps might not have known that. But what it became known for was, as the text picks up in verse 11, a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. And so those in the area renamed this place Abel Mizraim, verse 11. It is beyond the Jordan. This phrase means the mourning of Egypt. Later, I'll pull this application out, but I want to say it as we go. We don't know exactly what was going on. But what we do know is that it was a very great company that left with Joseph and his family to go and bury his father, made up of both uh, what would be the new Israelites as well as Egyptians. So we know that it was a great number. And what we also know is that it was a grievous mourning, that what took place on this flattened hillside was recognized by the surrounding nation, so much so that they renamed the threshing floor of Atad to Abel Mizraim. Friends, an immediate application for believers who trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that redemption comes not only in this life, but it also goes to the next. Jesus says that same thing. Praise the Lord that our salvation does not stop this side of eternity. But what we notice here is that mourning is okay. 
Mourning is a heart's response. In this case, the sadness of losing a loved one. So remember, a great company, a grievous mourning, and then we see that it takes place for seven days, verse 10. Now hear me clear. I don't have a time clock of seven days for anybody who loses a loved one, and I don't think the text does either. But it's trying to point out the magnitude of what's going on here. That this great company in great and grievous mourning spends a large amount of time mourning over Jacob. Friends, our mourning, even our mourning, is seen by others. That's why the Apostle Paul reminds us that we don't mourn as those without hope. We mourn with those as gospel hope. And we proclaim that gospel to others. Friend, what is it that's different about you? Because in the throes of life's hardest circumstances, you seem to be really joyous. There's something different about you. Let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about how he's changed my life. Let me tell you about how he's changing other people's life. And let me tell you how he can change yours too. We don't mourn as those without hope. We mourn with the hope of resurrected bodies promised to us by our resurrected King Jesus. He, just as we read from 1 Corinthians 15, is the first fruits. You know what that means? That means that if we were to go out and we were to pick up some type of crop as the first fruits, you expect there to be more. And not just expect, there will be more. That statement is true for those who fall asleep, the text says, of the death of believers, that we will be woken up, that we will be made new. I'm not an old person. Sometimes I feel a lot older than I am. But I've heard many trusted, seasoned saints share about their physical afflictions and awaiting the promises in Christ that say these mortal bodies in the new heavens and the new earth, they'll be immortal bodies. These imperfected bodies will become perfect bodies. Those who see Christ through a veil will see Him straight on. What a promise. What a promise. And so we can see that even as Joseph and his family mourns the death of Jacob as we ought to mourn those who die, whom we love. We see and will continue to see that there are great and mighty 
promises that flow through the primary promise of salvation coming through the chosen seed of Israel, Jesus Christ. This first part of the story ends in verse 14. Verse 13, his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. Scene one, this first funeral. This first funeral. And our application from this first point is that mourning is okay. But we mourn as those with hope. We'll get into that more as we go. For this second progression, Jacob, Israel, the patriarch of the family, the one in whom all of these 12 sons, these soon-to-be 12 tribes of Israel uh, came from, He's dead. And now the brothers, you know, Genesis 37, the brothers who plotted against Joseph, we are not going to bow down to him. In fact, we're going to put him in a pit. That was the second plan, y'all, remember? That was the second plan. For the first plan was, let's just kill him. Now let's put him in a pit. Let's make some money off this. Let's sell him. These same brothers at the death of their father now realize, what do they realize? The power and authority structure is different now. I love my mom and I respect my mom to death. But when I was in trouble with Mama Bear... I did not want to be around the front door when Daddy Bear got home because that line of communication was clear and it was clearly coming to me. And now this authority figure in Joseph's life and in the lives of the brothers is gone and they're fearful that Joseph, as the second in charge of all of Egypt, the one whom has delivered and provided for them, he's going to get us So, verse 16 picks up. They sent a message to Joseph, right? The fear is in verse 15. When Joseph's brother saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. Isn't that interesting? They don't sugarcoat it. They don't say, yeah, we messed up. They use a very specific Term. They don't say, yeah, we did some bad stuff. No, they own it. They recognize, they legitimize, we actually did evil to him. So in light of those things, verse 16, they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave the command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please 
Forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. So let's just pause right there before getting into verse 19. The brothers have acknowledged we legitimately did evil to our own brother. And now's the chance, if there ever were any, for him to repay our evil with evil. So they concoct a plan. Hey, dad can't defend himself anymore, so let's come with a message that that dad just so happened to share with us. That even from the grave, he can protect us and provide for us grace. Provide for us grace. Refuge. Verse 19, but Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Why would Joseph frame it this way? He's only responding to the actions of his brothers who come to him in verse 18, doing exactly what Joseph's dreams say they will do, and they've already fallen down before him. But here they are groveling at his feet, saying, behold, we, your brothers, are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Joseph, just as he did many times before, saying, I actually can't interpret dreams. God is the one himself who interprets dreams for us. Joseph again says, I am not worthy of this worship. I am not worthy of You being servants, I am not worthy of your servitude. But he comforts them and says, do not fear. As for you, you meant evil against me. Let's stop right there. We've already gotten to the fact that Joseph's brothers recognize he's going to pay us back for the legitimate evil that we did to him. They're not running with their tail between their legs or not anything like that. They're saying, we legitimately caused evil on this person. Joseph then comes along and, and, and kind of acknowledges, as for you, right? Imagine standing there as a judge. As for you, you did mean this for evil. Let's just call it what it is. You who are evil did what was evil. That was your intention. But. But. God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. But God meant it for good. 
Friends, this is what the theologians would refer to as this agency conflict. Right? Are we free creatures to do as we ought or as we want? Or are we strictly confined to the ways in which God operates in the world? And the Bible gives us a complex answer to those things. Kinda. Yes, you are a free creature. Joseph's brothers, free creatures, intended for evil, did evil. But over and above those things, in the sovereign will of God, He plans this for good. For good. Why? To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Isn't it interesting that He doesn't say, as you are today? Because the fruit of Joseph's ministry in Egypt, I'm using that term broadly, but the the fruit of Joseph's reigning in Egypt is not just for other people. It's also for his own people. But Joseph says, as for them, as they are today, as all those who found refuge in the food of Egypt, God planned this for good, and He brought it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So, He continues, just as He says in verse 19, soothing their fear, saying in verse 21, Do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. In the middle of these two funerals, you have some of the most profound reminders of God's activity in the world. We opened up the the first page of Genesis to see this cosmic nothingness, this blank canvas of no material. The theological phrase is ex nihilo, out of nothing, God speaks and makes everything that we see. This same authoritative God, this big God, this God whom those in Genesis refer to as God Almighty, as the Canaanites would have had lesser Uh, lowercase g gods, they continue the refrain, this is God Almighty. This is God Yahweh who covenants with His people and speaks to them. Joseph reminds his brothers, this is what God intended. This is God's plan at work. This is God's plan to continue a promise, to continue to bless a people that by them all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. And this is but a small 
microcosm of what we see come on the scene in Jesus. That while death comes, the promise of God continues. Let's look at this second funeral, verses 22 through the rest of the chapter. Joseph remained in Egypt. He in his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Maker, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die. But God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Not very similar to the funeral procession that his father received. Not very similar in many of those ways. But in the midst of these things, Joseph, fulfilling the role of prophet, begins to speak about the remaining time that his people will have there in Egypt, saying, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And he asked them to swear, to cut an oath that they, when that happened, would go and take his bones back to Canaan, to the promised land that we remember after the Exodus. That is where the people of God are headed. That is where God covenanted with Abraham. And that is where he is leading his people after the Exodus. This is the death of Joseph. Very quaint, unassuming. Yet in his final words, he proclaims the continuation of the promise of God that started in Genesis chapter 3, that continued through Noah, that continues again to Abram, continues through the barren woman to Isaac, continues on to Jacob, continues through the children's war of Jacob's wives to the twelve sons, and continues on through Jesus Christ. I want to, in conclusion, point just a few things out. We've already seen that an application from this text is that Mourning is okay. I also want us to see, as one commentator says, that as the original audience, right? Remember, we're not the original audience. We're the original audience to the sermon. I've never preached it before. But you are not the original audience of Genesis chapter 50. So, in the words of one famous preacher, you're not Joseph. You're not even Joseph's sons. 
Who was the original audience? Moses, writing to God's people after the Exodus, one commentator says, is writing to comfort the people of God that even in the midst of trial and hardship, God's promises can be trusted. God's promises can be trusted. Think about that in light of the promises that God made to Joseph's forefather, Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob, to make them a great and mighty people, to make them a great and mighty uh, people in a great and mighty place, and to provide for them that they would be a blessing to all of the nations. What might a people who have just come out of slavery, who are wandering in the midst of nowhere, what might they need to be comforted with? These promises are true, even though they don't feel like. Friends, you may, just as I am at times, hear these whispers, just like Eve was tempted in the garden. Did God really say? Did God really make this promise? Right? It's always easier to comfort others with the same truths that we know up here, but when we have to know them in here, and have to live them out. And walk these realities out. That's when the head has to move to the heart. Friend, these promises are true. I want to point you to verse 14. And transition to these things being true... How and why? Because of Christ. Our Savior was afflicted. The writer of Philippians says that he endured. Isaiah, the prophet, writes that he will be afflicted. He will be pierced for our transgressions. By his wounds, we will be healed. Christ did not turn away from any scorn or any shame on our behalf, but he endured. Verse 14 makes it seem as though Joseph could have settled for the easy way out. If you've ever gone to an um, escape room, the goal is you got to go through all of these clues that at the end you hope to be able to punch in some type of code and get out of the room. If you're claustrophobic, don't go. But the goal is to be able to get out of the room. Well, if the goal for the people of God is to get back to the promised land of Canaan, Joseph has it in verse 14. He's there. Pharaoh has allowed him. He's even taken all of Egypt's warriors, their chariots, their leaders. He's there in Canaan, the promised land. And you're like, he just buried his dad and become a great nation. That's not how it works. And I wish it was. I wish life as a Christian was so easy. I wish life as a Christian, don't cut this on YouTube, I wish life as a Christian was as easy as Joel Osteen makes it seem. But it's not. Our Savior didn't 
wash away. Our Savior didn't shrink away from the things that sat before him. No, he took it, all of it. He drank it to the dregs. He finished this work. It wasn't easy. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt. Friends, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prays this prayer. Father, not my will, but yours. If it be not your will. Friends, these promises of new life in Christ, not only for today, but forever. How and why? Because Jesus endured the cross. His perfect being as the the one born of the Spirit, sinless through and through, sinless in His activity, sinless in His life, sinless according to the law, was a pleasant aroma when He laid His life down. Friends, the promises of new life, the promise of the seed of the woman crushing the seed of the serpent continue to be through, continue to go even through death. Even through death. For Joseph says, God will surely visit you. God will surely visit you. And in verse 24, God will visit you and bring you up out of this land. Friends, this is pointing to the Exodus. I want your eyes to immediately go to the new Exodus. That while deliverance from a people in Egypt was miraculous and played a part in the plan and promise of God, the new Exodus of triumph over sin and death that was accomplished by Jesus is of far greater magnitude for us. And it is the how and the why. Are these promises true? Because God has visited us. God has sent His Son. Born under the law as human to redeem those under the law. Friends, the promise of God continues even through death. One closing application. If this is true, if this is true, since this is true, What do we do? If this is our only hope, if the gospel of Jesus Christ is our only hope in life and in death, what do we do? We talk about it all the time. Friends, I hate death. I hate it. And you should too. But being near 
to the finality and to our own morality that we die gives us a mighty clear reminder that Jesus says, those who trust in him, John 11, though he die, yet will he live? Jesus, how can this be true? His sister says. What does Jesus say? I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus is the how and the why. The promise of God continues. That even through death, the promise of God does not stop and it continues today through the proclamation of his son.